It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to Monday.com. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. Ready to get 30, 30, ready to get 30, ready to get 20, 20, 20, ready to get 20, 20, ready to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month. So give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Over her seven-decade reign, Queen Elizabeth II saw more prime ministers come and go than any other monarch in history. She would stand beside them at state occasions and set out the priorities of each of their governments in the Queen's speech at the annual state opening of Parliament. My lords and members of the House of Commons, My government's priority is to deliver a national recovery from the pandemic that makes the United Kingdom stronger, healthier, and more prosperous than before. But it was her weekly meetings, or audiences, at Buckingham Palace where the relationship between the head of state and head of government would really develop. Nice to see you again. Lovely to see you again. All of her prime ministers were required to attend, to give an account of their work and receive private counsel from a woman who bore witness to the major events of modern British history. Don't forget she's been Queen longer than any of us was ever Prime Minister. One thing about the meetings with the Queen, nobody is there, just just the corgis, and you could speak in absolute privacy. And her 15 prime ministers tell a story of a rapidly changing world during her reign. Her first prime minister was of an age to have charged on a horse with a sword at the last cavalry charge of the British army at Omdurman, to have fought in the First World War. And her current prime minister wasn't even born when she ascended to the throne. You're listening to Stories of Our Times from The Times and The Sunday Times. I'm Manveen Rana. Today, the monarch and her prime ministers. So I'm Anthony Selden and I'm here in Maidenhead. Sir Anthony Selden, to give him his full title, was knighted in the Queen's Birthday Honours for Services to Education and Modern Political History back in 2014. But that wasn't the first time he met the monarch. 
I came across her when I was head or master, as it's called, of Wellington College, which is the school in Berkshire that was created by Queen Victoria and Prince Albert as the national memorial to the Duke of Wellington of uh, Battle of Waterloo fame. And the monarch always was the visitor at the college and she took it seriously. And I was just struck by uh, how a school which couldn't hardly have been ranked very highly in her list of priorities, she nevertheless was enormously interested. She knew a lot. When you met, did she have compare notes on prime ministers, given your reputation as, as somebody who's written so much about them? I would absolutely love to say yes, but I don't believe that there is anyone, with the exception, no doubt, of Prince Philip, with whom she shared her views. She just would not talk about it. It wasn't something that she thought would have been appropriate. And I think she was completely right. And of course, most prime ministers themselves have not talked about, and they most certainly should not have spoken about anything the Queen said or about their relationship with them. So we can therefore assume that plays that have been written and, and television series, most of it is based on hearsay and presumption. Sir Anthony is referring to plays like Moira Buffini's Handbagged and Peter Morgan's Netflix hit series, The Crown. If you keep repeating something for long enough about, oh, she really liked Prime Minister X, or she didn't like Prime Minister Y, then people come to think it's true because it's time-honoured, but it doesn't mean it's true at all. There is something very special about that relationship between the Queen and, and the Prime Minister of the moment. And you're one of the few people who who's met and interviewed and written about many of the Prime Ministers during the Queen's reign. In your book, The Impossible Office, you explored the relationship between the monarchy and the office of the Prime Minister. How did it evolve over the Queen's reign? By the time that she became the monarch in 1952 and was crowned in 1953, the power in Britain had pivoted to Parliament and to the Prime Minister. Now, all that said, it does not mean that the Queen has been without power. And much of that power comes from her as a human being, as an individual, rather than from the institution of monarchy. And I think we'll see that with the new monarch. During the Queen's time on the throne, more than a dozen prime ministers came and went. She's sort of the great constant. Is there something about the time frame that the monarch works on compared to prime ministers? Does, does that change their outlook and... Is, is that a strain sometimes on the relationship? The monarch is the head of state, and it's difficult always to sum up what that power of the head of state is, but it is significant and it owes much to the fact that, that she was there for such a long period. And when you do that, you build up year by year, decade by decade, not just a wisdom and an understanding of people and events and the cycles of history, 
but it means that fewer and fewer people know anything before the life of the monarch. And it's been 20 years and more that we've had a prime minister in Britain who was not born during her own reign. The first prime minister she had, Winston Churchill, was like a grandfather to her. Then bit by bit, as she became older and more experienced, there clearly was a change in the relationship as she became older and prime ministers relative to her became younger. Space opened up to have more and more authority, like a grandmother or a great-grandmother. I have had quite a lot of prime ministers, starting with the Winston and some stayed longer than others. They unburden themselves or they tell me what's going on or if they've got any problems. And sometimes one can help in that way too. And occasionally you can um, be able to put one's point of view, which perhaps they hadn't seen it from that, that angle. But exactly how far prime ministers changed their thinking because of what the monarch uh, wanted it's impossible to say. Every Tuesday at approximately 6.30 p.m., the Queen of the United Kingdom has a private audience with her Prime Minister. The meeting takes place in the private audience room located on the first floor of Buckingham Palace. An unbroken line from Churchill to me. In this audience, Prime Ministers will fall under your spell. In his 2013 play, The Audience, playwright Peter Morgan imagined the meetings between the Queen and 12 of her Prime Ministers, from Churchill to Cameron. In real life, Sir Anthony Selden is confident that the Queen and each Premier will have found those one-to-one meetings useful. It's a, a very good way for the monarchs to keep their finger on the pulse. They're, they're reading the documents, but to actually talk to the prime minister themselves, to be able to ask questions, is a very good tutorial for them for finding out what really is going on, what really is troubling the prime minister. And that, of course, will extend to delicate uh, uh, personal matters uh, in their own lives, maybe, uh, and in the lives of uh, cabinet ministers and senior politicians, but also delicate matters relating to, 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 to foreign states, matters of peace and war, intelligence matters. And for prime ministers, there is nobody, with the exception of the spouse, who you can totally trust. And it makes it a very, very lonely job. You certainly cannot trust your cabinet. So the Queen uh, weekly audiences were something that was very special because it had that ring of trust and confidence around where they knew uh, that it was inconceivable mm. that anything they said and share with the monarch would be known in public. So every single prime minister looked to the visit with the Queen as something of an extraordinary privilege. It's a kind of mix between a visit to a, a therapist, a coach, a psychiatrist, a grandmother, a wise elder. It, it has ingredients of, of all of that. 
During World War II, George VI regularly lunched with Winston Churchill. This developed into a weekly audience, and when the king died, his daughter continued the meetings. Winston Churchill was close to her father, George VI, and that was enormously significant in providing a basis of personal knowledge uh, and trust and respect so that they were by no means beginning with a clean slate. They could therefore move at pace. Winston Churchill was totally enchanted by this beautiful young uh, queen, was full of compassion for having to move so rapidly from absorbing the loss of a father to taking responsibility for running the British state. Mm. And having him there with so much authority, it, it was significant for both of them. And helping steady her uh, and the debates over the televising of the coronation, it was significant to have Churchill with his deep knowledge of Commonwealth and empire and overseas uh, relations and the way that uh, uh, things worked. He knew not just a father, but a grandfather and a great-grandfather. He'd been in uh, cabinet 40 years before she became monarch. So he, he was highly significant. It's difficult to imagine that there could have been a better tutor for the young Queen Elizabeth. Did he remain an influence even after he left Downing Street? Churchill was already 80 when he gave up as Prime Minister in April uh, 1955. So he was there as somebody who could be consulted, but he was also a very strict respecter of the Constitution and Convention, and he would have thought it inappropriate to have muscled in on the core relationship, which is between the monarch and his successors, initially Anthony Eden from... 1955 to 57, and then Harold Macmillan from 1957 until 1963. Although by then she was beginning to learn her own way around, although heavily preoccupied also by having children. How did Harold Wilson adapt to building a relationship with the Queen? The the view very much given as in the crown, is that this was a very warm relationship. Limericks? Yes, ma'am. Some of them, I'm afraid to say, a little off colour. Hmm. Well, go on then. Oh, right. Um, <clears throat> well, the first one went a little... There was a young woman from Delaware Wilson was adept at ingratiating himself. He was very charming. He would have taken enormous trouble to please her and to find out uh, what she was interested in. But he was not a man of the countryside. Queen Elizabeth's first Labour Prime Minister, and quite a hot-headed Labour Prime Minister, wouldn't have known the social circles in which she moved, unlike both Alec Douglas Hume and, of course, Winston Churchill. So it was a surprising relationship that brought pleasure and meaning on both sides. Harold Wilson, one of the most indiscreet 
of prime ministers would have felt quite comfortable at very subtly letting it out about how much the Queen liked him, how much he looked forward to those occasions. So I just think we need to have an, a quantum of scepticism. We can very easily exaggerate the significance of uh, Harold Wilson to the Queen. I suppose it must have been harder for his successor, Sir Edward Heath, who seemed a little bit more awkward around her. Edward Heath was the most awkward Prime Minister of her entire reign and indeed one of the most awkward Prime Ministers in history. He was not good at uh, small talk, not good at making people uh, feel at home. He was not a bundle of laughs. They didn't have interests that could mean so much in the formation uh, of a enjoyable and productive relationship. He most certainly was a monarchist. Edward Heath would certainly not have talked about the relationship and was most certainly deeply proud of the relationship that he had as prime minister with the monarch. She was, of course, always remarkably well informed. In part, this was due to the fact that she has informants and advisors from all over the world. And I believe she was always uh, very assiduous in reading the reports. Added to that, her own personal experience of travel, uh, which few other people in the world had. Coming up, two women at the top, Queen Elizabeth II and Prime Minister Margaret Thatcher. But first... I'm Emma Tucker, and I'm the editor of The Sunday Times. I'm proud that every week we bring you a distinctive take on the news with exclusive stories, investigations, and unrivaled political, cultural, and sporting analysis. We can only do this thanks to the subscribers of The Times and The Sunday Times. Subscribe today by visiting thetimes.co.uk forward slash stories of our times. It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax and think about work you really really want it all to work out while you're away monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind when all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync things just flow wherever you are tap the banner to go to monday.com hey i'm ryan reynolds recently i asked mint mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation they said yes and then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass!" So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. Margaret Thatcher was the first female prime minister. Suddenly you have two women effectively leading the nation. Was there sort of a mutual respect between them? Absolutely. It is uh, 
not true that they had this very prickly relationship. Clearly, for Queen Elizabeth to have her first Prime Minister, Britain's first Prime Minister, who was also a woman, changed the dynamic and knew areas of, of conversation, but also work and preparation came in about um, what they were going to be wearing, which was not a, a, a worry when a Prime Minister would come in in a, in a dark suit and a white tie. And Margaret Thatcher, very, very proud of Britain. Part of her scepticism about the EU stemmed from her love of British history and Britain as an independent country with sovereignty ultimately residing in the Queen or the Queen in Parliament. Everything about Margaret Thatcher spoke about the warmth and esteem that she held for the monarchy. And additionally, the Queen has always been very frugal uh, and careful about money. And this was an item of absolute faith and importance to Margaret Thatcher, that uh, there wasn't needless extravagance. And the Queen ideologically was coming from a place that she would have found very acceptable. And when people talked about a prickliness in their relationship, a lot of this goes back to their slightly different attitudes to the Commonwealth. The difficulties came over South Africa and the Queen felt herself under a lot of pressure from Commonwealth heads of government concerned that South Africa was clearly out of line with pace of development of equality of voting. And it, it was a different perspective that Margaret Thatcher had, who felt strongly that it wasn't the job of Britain to intervene in the internal affairs of other countries. We must recognise that in most circumstances, the power of international organisations in today's world is the power of persuasion, not coercion. The United Nations can't and shouldn't try to dictate detailed solutions to countries involved in disputes. Only the parties themselves can reach agreements, whether they be the Soviet Union and the United States, the Arabs and the Israelis, or white and black in South Africa. The Commonwealth has always been enormously important to the Queen, far more important to the Queen than to any of her Prime Ministers. Mm. And their hearts and heads are in a different place about the Commonwealth. That caused some tension between both of them, but it passed and was quickly forgotten. The Queen brings to bear a formidable grasp of current issues and a tremendous breadth of experience. Her guidance and advice are always most acute, and as Prime Minister, I was privileged to benefit from both enormously. Don't forget she's been Queen longer than any of us was ever Prime Minister. Both women admired each other and surely would have shared something about what it was like to be a, a female leader in still what was essentially a man's world. Sir John Major who came next, he sort of seemed to be embraced as almost part of the household eventually. John Major, like Harold Wilson, knew how to relate to the Queen. And we can see that they were very close, not because of anything that John Major himself has said, because he would be scrupulous not to reveal any conversation, but uh, in the way that the royal family have taken to 
him and to have sought out his advice. We can therefore assume, I think rightly, that there was a very close and trusting relationship between John Major and Queen Elizabeth. And on top of that, John Major had the most difficult time with his own cabinet. And it, it, it is highly likely that they spent some of that time talking about the difficulty of having very ambitious, prickly and disloyal colleagues around you. The one thing about the meetings with the Queen, nobody is there, just, just the corgis, and you could speak in absolute privacy. There's no private secretary there, no notes are made. You can say exactly what you wish, exactly what is on your mind, and so can uh, the Queen. So that is very valuable. She's a good questioner, and her questions are often very, uh, very pertinent. And it was always extremely useful because it was a completely external view from someone who knew politics, who had been looking at state papers for 28 years at the time I became Prime Minister. There is no one in the world who has ever seen as many state papers over such a long period as the Queen. And of course, she has learned uh, a great deal from that. And I often came, <laughs> I often came away from those meetings uh, thinking to myself, what a shame she isn't in the cabinet. So that was one of the best of the relationships between Queen Elizabeth and the Prime Minister. In 1997, John Major was swept out of Downing Street by a new Labour landslide and a new breed of Prime Minister. A new dawn has broken, has it not? Tony Blair was in awe of Queen Elizabeth and was very full of admiration, very proud to be Prime Minister with her, but was also very conscious that he was Prime Minister at the end of the 20th century and was taking Britain into the 21st century and in many ways was trying to modernise the country. And together with modernising the country, he was thinking about the modernising of democracy and the relationship between the different constituent nations within Britain, and also thinking about the position of the monarch. In addition, he had a highly influential advisor, Alastair Campbell, his director of communications, who was not a monarchist at all. And so that was a, a different atmosphere, a, a different kind of relationship. John Major had been born in 1943, Tony Blair was born in 1953, and that was a significant age uh, difference between them, and that uh, was reflected again in the relationship with the Queen. And clearly there was the moment of greatest tension or difficulty over the death of Diana. We are today a nation in Britain in a state of shock, in mourning, in grief that is so deeply painful for us. She was a wonderful and a warm human being. She touched the lives of so many others in Britain throughout the world with joy and with comfort. People everywhere, they kept faith with Princess Diana. They liked her, they loved her. They regarded her as one of the people. 
she was the people's princess and that's how she will stay how she will remain in our hearts and in our memories forever number 10 downing street was claiming to be a far clearer reader of the spirit of the nation that critical week in uh, British history than the Queen herself. And in significant ways, Tony Blair was closer and did get it all right. And we saw then the shift and the pivot in the position of the Queen. My sense is that they became closer when Britain entered the 21st century. But I, I wonder whether Tony Blair would have been one of her favourite prime ministers. And what about David Cameron? It was a, a generational shift, um, a, a complete change in government after years of new Labour. How did he get on with the Queen? David Cameron was clearly demonstrably much younger again, the youngest Prime Minister for 198 years. The Queen uh, was much more like a, a grandmother to him in terms of the age difference, but Cameron came from a an aristocratic background with Scottish roots. Social circles were, were not uh, that dissimilar. There was a big identity of interest. Her experience was useful, I'm sure, to David Cameron as he negotiated the difficulties of overseeing a coalition government. And that's where the Queen's experience is unique. Nobody else has seen it up as close uh, as that. They had the Olympics. Two years later, they were sharing an experience of the referendum in Scotland, a vote that went 55%, 45% in favour of remaining in the Union. There was the indiscretion about the Queen wanting people to consider very carefully how they were going to vote. Buckingham Palace has expressed displeasure after the former Prime Minister, David Cameron, revealed that he sought the Queen's help during the Scottish independence referendum campaign because he was concerned Scotland was going to vote for independence. Not asking for anything that would be in any way improper or unconstitutional, but just a raising of the eyebrow, even, you know, a quarter of an inch, would we thought, you know, make a difference. David Cameron said that the Queen purred at the result that was one of the worst uh, abuses of trust, because that showed clearly that the Queen was pleased by the decision, as indeed she would have been, but for the Prime Minister blatantly to come out and say it um, could only have caused difficulties with her relationships with the 45% of Scots who voted in favour of leaving. So I don't think it was one of the epic relationships between the Prime Minister uh, and the monarch. So that's a real blunder, letting slip something that was said in confidence. Yes. What, what about Theresa May, another woman again? Theresa May, as much as any of the prime ministers, completely uh, adored seeing the monarch and being able to confide in the monarch her concerns and worries. I remember one picnic at Balmoral which was taking place in one of the bosses on the estate. The hampers came from the castle and we all mucked in to put the food and drink out on the table. I picked up some cheese, put it on a plate and was transferring it to the table. The cheese fell on the floor. I had a split-second decision to make. 
I picked up the cheese, put it on the plate and put it on the table. And I turned round to see that my every move had been watched very carefully by Her Majesty the Queen. I looked at her, she looked at me, and she just smiled. And the cheese remained on the table. It would seem to be psychologically highly likely that the Queen's experience and wisdom and kindness would have been of enormous significance, studying her through that terribly difficult three years that she had as Prime Minister. I have just been to see Her Majesty the Queen, who has invited me to form a government, and I have accepted. Finally, Boris Johnson, as with so many uh, matters concerned with Boris Johnson, one gets not a clear view, but, a, but a, a, a mudded, muddled view of, on the one hand, an utter monarchist who would have been enchanted by seeing the Queen with somebody also who had a very clear agenda over getting Brexit done, which brought him into conflict with the monarch. This court has already concluded that the Prime Minister's advice to Her Majesty was unlawful, void and of no effect. And crisis came over the proroguing of Parliament, where many felt that Prime Minister Number 10 were putting the monarch under undue pressure, as indeed were his repeated breachings of the Constitution and Convention. And one wonders whether, knowing Boris Johnson's own life, that the, the, the monarch and the royal family uh, would have wanted to turned to him in reciprocating the relationship in the same way that they've turned to, to some other of the Prime Ministers we've discussed. The rest of Boris Johnson's premiership would be eclipsed by COVID-19, where the defining image of the royal family would be the Queen sitting alone at her husband's funeral. She had flawlessly followed the rules on social distancing, and by doing so, sent a message of kinship to thousands of people across the country who'd lost loved ones during the pandemic. That impulse to do her duty carried her right through into her 10th decade to the very moment in Balmoral, as my right honourable friend has said, only three days ago, when she saw off her 14th Prime Minister and welcomed her 15th. And I can tell you, in that audience... She was as radiant and as knowledgeable and as fascinated by politics as ever I can remember and as wise in her advice as anyone I know, if not wiser. And that 15th Prime Minister would be her last, Liz Truss. It was just three days ago at Balmoral that she invited me to form a government and become her 15th Prime Minister. Again, she generously shared with me her deep experience of government, even in those last days. Everyone who met her will remember the moment. They will speak of it for the rest of their lives. That meeting provided the last public photo of the Queen. She can be seen smiling broadly in her Scottish home, Balmoral Castle. 
Her first Prime Minister, Winston Churchill, and her last, Liz Truss, were born 101 years apart and serve as a reminder of the breadth of change she oversaw during her reign. Your Majesty, Prime Minister. Your Majesty. King Charles III continued the weekly meetings with his first Prime Minister, Liz Truss, the day after his accession to the throne, signalling a new era for the monarch and their Prime Ministers. You've been listening to Stories of Our Times, a podcast brought to you thanks to the subscribers of The Times and The Sunday Times, with me, Manveen Rana, and my guest, political biographer and historian, Sir Anthony Selden. His books, including The Impossible Office, The History of the British Prime Minister, are available in bookshops. The producers today were Marilyn Rust, Edward Drummond, and Sam Chantarasak. The executive producer is Kate Ford, and sound design was by David Crackles. This episode featured extracts from The Crown, courtesy of Netflix, and The Audience via the National Theatre. Both were written by Peter Morgan. Archive material came from the BBC and ITV. Thanks for listening. See you tomorrow. Thank you.